Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is Zarna Garg. Well, sort of. That's not a real name. <laughs> you see, my parents messed up. They misspelled it. It's as if I got up here and said my name was Melizabeth. <laughs> because Jharna with a J means waterfall in Hindi. Zarna with a Z is she's the youngest. Let the servants name her. <laughs> no, no, oh, it's okay. I had servants. <laughs> and this permanent spelling error from the people who win every spelling bee. You may think Zarna's been doing this stand up thing for a long time, but really, it's only been five years. She first took the stage at 43 years old after spending much of her adult life as a full-time stay-at-home mom. And now she has 1.5 million followers on social media. She's the host of the podcast, The Zarna Garg Show, and she's just released her first stand-up special on Amazon called One in a Billion. At this rate, everyone will remember the name Zarna Garg, despite the misspelling. I wanted to know, when she was a little girl growing up in Bombay, India, which is now known as Mumbai, what was the comedy surrounding her like? Comedy in India, even today, is very much like slipped on a banana peel type humor, slapstick. Like the idea of stand-up comedy is new in India. It exists and it's growing at a very fast rate, but it's not very old. Like it's all new. There's comedians now that have their own voice and their own shtick, whatever that shtick is. But it's all new. So I certainly didn't grow up with it. I did grow up watching all the sitcoms that were playing in America. You could get bootleg copies of all of them in India, even back in the 80s. But I didn't realize that those people were comedian. I mean, I honestly never stepped foot in a comedy club until I performed myself. So Indian people don't really go to comedy club. First of all, we're not seeking out fun. <laughs> like, as a people, we don't really invest in joy. We don't believe in it. If there was a club that was selling SAT prep classes at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, all the Indians would be there with their kids. So are you saying that the Indian national saying is India? That's not funny. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and don't you try to make it. We are happy being stressed out. We're happy being you know, miserable and upset about something at all times. So I think that my earliest memories of actually watching the works of comics, of watching all the sitcoms, but not knowing that their roots were in a comedy club with a mic, you know, trying one joke at a time. That whole world was very new to me five years ago. And I mean, I live in New York City. I live in Manhattan, which is like arguably the center of stand-up comedy in the world. And I still didn't know there are comedy clubs in my neighborhood. Like the the comic strip is in my backyard. And I was like, oh, they must make comic books in there. 
it never occurred to me that a comic is something else. Like I grew up reading comic books. I mean, I drove by a place called the Laugh Factory, which is a very popular uh, comedy club chain. I literally thought, oh my God, people in America are running out of things to make. You know, because in India, what I had seen was laughing clubs. Like all these elderly people would walk around and, and like the idea of people laughing while they were walking was a thing. So I figured, okay, maybe this is some exercise version of it. Then that makes me wonder, is your attraction to comedy, to being funny, to being among funny people, do you think that if you hadn't grown up in India, then maybe it wouldn't have felt so repressed in you and it wouldn't have come out the way that it has? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think if I had grown up in a world where every woman was freely talking her mind, then I might not even resonate at the level at which I'm, because then I, I would be one of millions. And I really thought, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom for 16 years. All I did was diaper, formula, stroller, the, that whole world. I have three kids. When I came out from under that rock and for the first time thought, oh, maybe comedy because my daughter ma made me think about it. I really thought there must be a million Indian women comics. I just don't know about them. Because when you're consumed with the whole baby stuff the way I... I was and a lot of moms are, you just so believe that the world has moved past you and you just don't know what's happening anymore. The kids are talking a new language. The celebrities have all changed. Pop culture has moved on. Technology is frightening because you haven't kept up. You're not in an adult world, so you don't know what's going on. I really thought that there must be a million Indian mom comedians and I should go find them and see what they're doing. And when I realized that no one was doing it, I was like, oh, my God, Like we really have lost. We have not participated in one of the biggest joys. I mean, it's such a fun experience. It's such a fun experience. So it was an aha moment for me. Will you tell the story of the water dispenser that your daughter got you for your birthday? There was this constant chatter of mom's funny and funny. And now if you're Indian, funny means nothing. It means nothing. It's a tragedy. Like I remember being young and some people saying I was funny to my parents and they were overcome with grief. <sighs> they were like, we didn't get the doctor. We didn't get the accountant. We didn't get the engineer. We were the funny one. <laughs> like, this was like their life's big disappointment. So the fact that my kids were like, she's funny, she's funny. I kept thinking, but what? yeah, but what? What are you going to do with it? And then my daughter put together this whole birthday project where she reached out to people from 30 years ago in my life and said, you know, my mom's birthday is coming up. Can you send me a memory of yours? I want to collect some of your memories. And she knew that almost everybody will say something about mom being funny. So she collected all these in a big water dispenser that I had been covering. All I ever wanted was a fancy water dispenser in my kitchen. You know, the ones you see in the big fancy hotels and you're like, why don't I have this? Then I would drink water. <laughs> the heart wants what the heart wants, Zarna. Yeah. Right. But haven't you ever walked by it on a hot day and been like, why don't I have this in my house? It doesn't look so complicated. So uh, she knew I had wanted it, but then she filled it with all these notes from people that she had rewritten all the notes. And every note going back 30, 40 years was like, you made us laugh. And when I saw that, I really, I remember weeping, thinking, 
there's something here. I just don't know what it is and how I'm going to do something with it. But I have to take this seriously. Uh, so that is the story of the water dispenser. What was that moment when you went from being a full-time stay-at-home mom? You were also a lawyer. <laughs> You've called yourself a terrible lawyer. I was the worst. How do you go through law school and become a terrible lawyer, though? Like, did, wasn't there anything that warned you? How does that happen? There's so many ways to, you know, I, I was, I'm good on paper. What can I say? <laughs> but my clients are really, half of them are in jail right now. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> we can't talk about it. <laughs> so, so how do you go from full-time stay-at-home mom, crappy lawyer, to I'm going to get on a stage and go for this stand-up comedy thing. What was that moment? You know, it, it's my kids, my all-American kids. And I, it kills me to say that because I, I remind them all the time that they're Indian kids and then they remind me that they're American kids. And this is a constant struggle between a lot of parents with like roots somewhere else. So they said to me, you know, I was really struggling how to get my... I had written a screenplay that won the top comedy prize in screenwriting. And then... I couldn't do anything with it. No one wanted to talk to me. And I didn't even know who to talk to because I was such an outsider in that world. And I was sitting there thinking, how do I get my work out there? Like, how do I show the world what I do? And my daughter, you know, who's very much born and raised in New York, she's like, mom, why don't you just do like a little stand-up comedy and show the world what kind of humor you do? And I was like, what do you know? You know, when a kid says something, the mother's first reaction is like, what do you know? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that is the dumbest thing ever. Then all three kids ganged up on me because for all those years, I made them do things they didn't want to do. I made them eat foods they didn't want to eat. I made them go to classes they didn't want to take. And it became like, oh, mom is too scared to try. So quite literally on a dare, I went to an open mic and I really thought, I'll go, I'll do the thing. I'll come home and I'll tell the kids that I did it and it was the dumbest idea ever and move on from it. But that open mic ended up changing my life. Tell me about it. So I went there not knowing what anything is, what comedy is, what one does at an open mic. And the woman who ran it said, why don't you get up on stage and talk about whatever you think is funny for five minutes? And I was like, anything, you know, uh, and she said, yeah, whatever you think is interesting and funny. And I went up there and started trashing my mother-in-law because who doesn't think that's funny, right? That's true. So I just, I don't know. I was just telling stories that I had told my whole life. Well, wait a minute. I want to back up a second. So for some people, this would be their worst nightmare. For you, you're like, no, clear, clearly you have a comfort being on stage. You feel comfortable being, having a mic in front of you, feel comfortable trashing your mother-in-law. But what was going through your mind? Like for some people, they would feel like the stakes are high. Did it not feel like the stakes were high? So I can explain to you why I'm not intimidated by it. And I wasn't then and I'm not even now in huge, humongous venues. I now know that the roots of my comedy are back in my childhood where I actually used humor to survive. And that's when stakes were high, when I had nowhere to go, no home. You know, my dad had thrown me out of the house. My mom had died. This is a lot. It kind of came out of nowhere. I'm sorry to your listeners and viewers. But a lot fell apart in my life when I was 14 years old. But what kept me going and what got me invited to people's homes and what kept me in, like, in a safe space was that I could make people laugh. 
people always didn't mind including me in their plans because they knew that I would keep it light. I would entertain everybody. I would get invited to Diwali dinners, holy dinner, you know, like our festivals and stuff. Because they were like, oh, people love her. You know, I could turn any, I could turn a funeral into like a whole comedy show if I wanted to. A funeral. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, we should trademark that. <laughs> so I think that when stakes are that high and you've survived that, like making 50, 100 people laugh in a room or not. And I didn't, you know, honestly, the other thing is that when I went and did the open mic, I really thought I'm going to do this and never come back. So what did I have to lose? I wasn't trying to audition to become something. I really thought this was the world's dumbest idea. But because my kids are going to be like, mom's being a hypocrite, I have to do something. So I, I really went as if I was talking to my friends. They were all nice looking people in the audience. The woman who put me on stage was nice. They could have all been my friend at my house for a dinner party. And I would have been telling the same story. And, the, and I kind of went with the spirit of that. And I even to this day try to remind myself that that is what worked. And I should just stick to that spirit. Like so sometimes I, I'm in humongous venues, like thousands, tens of thousands of people. And I do feel like, oh, my God, are they all going to listen to me? And then I remember the words of a veteran comic once said to me, do what brought you here. Don't overthink it. Like, so now I, I feel like when people see me, they think I'm their aunt, their neighbor, their, you know, their mother, their grandmother, whatever. And if that vibe is getting them to listen to what I'm saying and we're connecting, I'm fine with it. For most comedians, their first few years are marked by constant failure and bombing and fighting for stage time, poor attendance in the crowds. I'd love to hear about your early years and uh, what of that resonated with you. All true. And a lot of it applied to me too, applies to me as well. Except the very beginning when I did my first Bringer show, and if your audience doesn't know, I'll quickly explain. So Bringer show is how many comics, including myself, we start in comedy, where the club says, if you bring X number of people, you can have X number of minutes on the stage. <laughs> so a common thing in New York is if you bring five people, you can get five minutes on stage. Because we have to support the venue, right? The venue is trying to struggling to survive with the food and drink sales and all of that. So when I thought I had a five minute joke set, I put a flyer on my personal Instagram. I think at the time I had 120, 130 followers, you know, my other mom friends. And I said, if five of you can make time to come for this thing, they'll give me five minutes on stage. And I, I just showed up thinking, I'm sure somebody will show up. Like, maybe I'll get two minutes. Maybe two people come. You know, I didn't really know what was going to happen. 95 people showed up. People texted their friends, texted their other friends, people in Connecticut, people in New Jersey, people all over. They were just so excited that an Indian woman was going to do mother-in-law jokes. Because <laughs> they all knew at the time that that's what I was kind of working on. It just spread. I mean, I walked into the club. I was like, who is all, who are all these people? And they were all like, it's my friend and my other. And I said, I'm only doing five. I felt such a weight that I'm only doing five minutes. Like the remaining 90 minutes is going to be other people. I don't know what's happening. But they were so kind. They were so generous. And they were like, we don't care. We're just going to sit and this is going to be a fun time. 
And that went on for a while. Well, like literally 50, 60 people, 100 people would show up. But then COVID happened and everything. Like I got, I had such great momentum. COVID shut us down. And you know how in America, everybody's like, where did COVID start? Was it China? Was it the bat? I tell everybody, it started in my mother-in-law's kitchen. She wanted to end my career and she spared <laughs> no effort. She was like, I will take the whole world down if I have to. But put an end to this woman and what she's talking about. <laughs> and so what happened was that when COVID happened, I was faced with what do I do? I like I already started comedy late in life. I was 44 when I started. I was like, how many second, third chances am I going to get? You know, so and, and at the time, too, not many clubs were booking me. I didn't know any bookers and people would see this and be like, you're not our demographic. They would just say that. So I decided, you know what, the world's coming to an end anyway. We were in New York City, the epicenter of the epicenter. You remember way in the beginning? I started doing comedy for free on the streets, in the subway, in Central Park. I had a little mobile uh, speaker and mic that I would walk around the city with. And I would beg people to listen to my jokes because I was so worried that the funny would leave me if I didn't practice every day. I have actually a tree in Central Park that was the Auntie Zarna tree. But I would be like on my fly Instagram, I would be like, I'm going to be there at 5 p.m. If you're a comic and you want to tell jokes, join me. If you're just doing nothing and want to hear jokes, please join me. And that started at the beginning, at peak COVID. We started the first show was five or six people, a dog, an ambulance, a helicopter, the police chasing us away because in theory, you needed like some sort of permit to do that. But of course, I had no permit. So we would just run from tree to tree, like as soon as they came. That was the first show. The last show we did was the Diwali show where we celebrated Diwali, which is the Indian New Year. But everybody was invited. Whoever wanted to come was invited. That last show, 200 families came out. The local restaurants sent free food and dessert to just distribute it because it was Diwali. Another local restaurant sent water and seltzer bottles for everybody. I learned that if you put yourself out there with the best of intentions and with honest intentions, the world will respond in some way. And of course, along the way, I scared the shit out of people because I would walk into subway. And you know how in the subway, people start dancing. People, I was like, why can't I just tell a joke? So I would go in with my mic, my my speaker and be like, do you want to listen to a joke? And it would, it would like startle people. So what I'm hearing is this, uh, I want to say fearlessness. And I, I think that that's a dangerous word because yeah. it's not that you're fearless. You, you're a human. Most human beings feel fear. It's just you, you, you feel the fear and do it anyway, right? But with you, it feels like your fear is at a low hum. Is that right? I would say it's less fear and it's more desperation. I really was desperate to do something and to build a career and to be a part of the world. Like, I really think that the years when I was a stay-at-home mom stripped me of my self-confidence, my identity. I felt like I just got reduced to nothing. And this is not a statement to anybody about what they should do. It, I didn't, I was a stay-at-home mom myself for 16 years. And a lot of good came out of it, especially for my kids and my family. But I paid a huge price for it. And, and I came out of those years desperate. Like, 
it was like the need for oxygen like i need to be part of something i need to build something that i'm proud of for myself and again the fear thing i i kind of just balance it always with they all just people like i've now done comedy for some of the most famous people in the world sit across the table and be like tell me a joke and like lot of comics will freeze at a moment like that like it's it's not a joke setting you're at a i don't know a state dinner at the pentagon you're not really thinking jokes but i take it all very lightly i think everybody at the end of the day is another human being just trying to connect and they are all wanting to laugh i assume people want to laugh I, and i feel like destiny has brought me here for a reason and so i have to trust in it that was comedian zarna garg when we get back while performing for thousands of people on stage how does she handle fear i kind of made a decision that i'm going to panic less and just see what happens even if i falter on stage i'm kayon wolf this is audacious stay with me such a strange thing here's to the ones who make us laugh to keep themselves from crying here's to the ones who make us laugh to keep themselves from crying support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. My brother who lives back home, he's a believer. He goes to the temple every day in Mumbai, and every day he FaceTimes me from the temple, and he points the phone at Ganesh. <laughs> and he says, quick, ask what you want from God today. <laughs> How sweet, right? My brother, he's thinking about me, and I'm a good person. I ask for nice things, like cure cancer, end hunger, world peace, but every day? <laughs> Some days I get selfish. <laughs> Some days I'm like, how about an air fryer? <laughs> or a comedy special. <laughs> this is Audacious, I'm Kayon Wolf, and that was a clip of comedian Zarna Garg from her 2023 Amazon stand-up special, One in a Billion. Now, the past five years for Zarna have been very different from the 40 or so years that came before. When she was just 14, her mom died suddenly. And shortly after her father gave her a choice, she could commit to having an arranged marriage or be kicked out of the house. So 
Teenage Zarna moved out, and two years later, she immigrated to the United States. She got her law degree, discovered she was a pretty crappy lawyer, and then for 16 years, Zarna devoted herself to her family as a stay-at-home mom in New York City. Since she made the switch to comedy, her rise to fame has been meteoric. In the past five years, she's performed at the Comedy Cellar and Caroline's in New York City. She won Kevin Hart's comedy competition, Lift Comics, and she's begun touring the country as a renowned headlining comedian. Just this May, her first comedy special, One in a Billion, was released on Amazon Prime Video, and now her 1.5 million followers on social media are tuning in to her new podcast, The Zarna Garg Show. But let's get back to basics here. As really great ideas for jokes come to her, how does she keep track? You know, when a good thought comes, you think, oh, I'll remember it. It's so good. I'll remember it. That evening, you're like, what was that again? What was it about? Or worse, you don't even realize that you've forgotten it. So now I'm like, no, no, no. I have to, I do voice notes to myself or I'll make a quick video. If it happens with friends, I'll make a quick video. Sometimes I'll release it on TikTok or Instagram. You'll see a lot of quick videos that, like, you know, I have a Instagram, TikTok, Facebook following, YouTube. People think, oh, I'm sitting there and scripting. It's No, it's like 30 seconds, go capture the moment. That's it. Do you think that that practice keeps you in the flow of it? Because if you were to collect them and hoard them until it's time to present them on a shiny platter in front of people on a stage, that maybe you would lose the momentum? You know, I can see that a comic like Seinfeld probably did it like that. 30 years ago, that's how you did comedy. No one saw the behind the scene. People only saw you when you walked out on stage in your finely pressed suit. That is not the world we live in today. So without my social media, I wouldn't have a comedy career. No club was going to book me until they saw that the world likes what I do. No comedy club in America is looking for this. but But when they presented with it, along with the media proof, that people like what she's done or they themselves, when they see me sometimes now club bookers are like, oh, you're the lady from TikTok. And they'd be like, you're my mom's favorite comedian. But none of that will happen if I don't put myself out there and put my work out there. You have to over deliver. As a woman, you know that. That's like we have to perform and outperform by a lot to even just get the baseline. And and the fact that it comes naturally, I don't like to overthink things. I, I have a lot of faith in the world. I really do. I've survived so much. And I feel like if you put your intentions out there, they're being received in the way that you're intending. That I, I You have to operate with that belief or you're going to lose your mind. And that to me has been a big revelation in my social media journey is that even when people try to fake it, you can tell. Don't don't you feel like you can tell? Like the audience is so pers. I'm sure you see it in your work. Like when you're not a hundred percent there and interested, your audience can tell. No matter how hard you try to cover it. Uh, you'd mentioned about how to be a woman, you have to over deliver, and of course, to be a black or brown woman, you have to do that so much more. Um, you've had to deal with some. Blatantly racist. I I deal with a whole bunch of stuff, but my own people are mad at me for what I do. Indian people, there are a lot of Indian people who are embarrassed by me, who hate what I do, 
who are triggered by the idea that a woman who looks like me holds a mic and says what she thinks. If I make jokes about my mother-in-law, there's a whole world of men who spring to her defense. They don't know her. They don't know our life at all. In the world that we come from, that I come from, India and most brown women cultures, our mother-in-law could be like beating us with a stick, could be burning us alive. And I mean it literally. I'm not even exaggerating. It could be pouring gasoline on us and lighting us on fire. And we're supposed to say thank you and show respect. So a lot of people in my own community hate what I do. The amount of hate I get, if you scroll through my social media comment section, it's filled with, and it's not a race thing. In fact, if anything, people in America and in the Western world have embraced me. They've made my career possible. If I had to do what I do in India, it would not happen. They would shoot it down immediately and like literally shoot it down. There are women comics in India that, and they keep quitting. Because they're so afraid. And I get it. Like at some point, you know, your life, your loved ones, your kids, your wife, your husband are being threatened. There are people who've gone through my social media, traced my in-laws. They've done location maps of where they live, found them, threatened them in real life. I get threats about my kids, my husband all the time, my brother, my his kids who live in India. So... The idea that an Indian woman is going to do what I'm doing is triggering on so many levels. But as far as it comes to racism in America, I have a funny relationship with it. I really am so immigranty that half the time I don't even understand what people are saying. <laughs> you know, if somebody says something rude to me, I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time with every fool who has something negative like I'm not forcing anybody to buy a ticket to come to my show or follow me on any social media. You don't like me. There's so many easy ways to not deal with me at all. Sometimes I'll engage in like a friendly batter with somebody who says they hate me. And I'll be like, are you sure you hate me? Because maybe there's another joke that you might like. Let, let's try this one. And there are times when my trolls have turned around and said, okay, this was fun. <laughs> I want to talk about crowd work. The idea of interacting with crowds as a comedian for some is the most exciting thing. Like they practically do it just for the crowd work and some would really rather not please turn it off. Yeah. How do you feel about crowd work? I used to be scared because I worked so hard to write amazing quality jokes that any diversion from the joke would scare me. I would be paralyzed. I'd be like, I'm not going to remember where I was and, what was I saying? And now where are the, and then what am I supposed to say to this person who wants to be heckled? And, but I kind of made a decision that I'm going to panic less and just see what happens, even if I falter on stage. Cause I used to be so obsessed with being flawlessly delivering a performance that there was a human element to it that I started feeling like I was missing myself because it is a live performance. It is not a pre-recorded tape Netflix special that you're coming to, right? So things are going to happen. If you go in with the attitude that everything that happens in that room is funny, then you will make it funny. Like, even if you forget, that's funny. There are times where I'm like, so where was I again? Oh, oh, okay. You know, now you know I'm a real auntie. And then everybody starts laughing. And I'll be like, all right, I forgot where we were. So you're going to hear one joke over again so we can restart from where I remember. And everybody applauds. You know, 
connecting to the humanity of the people in the room has given me the courage to like to, to be like all right you know i will make my mistakes i may even say something that's wrong because that's the big fear you know in crowd work it's so spontaneous that like you might say something that comes out in a way that you don't mean for it to come out and somebody video show like a 10 second video could become like can you believe she said this and we especially comic stand up comics live in the fear of that but if you are fearful of it you may as well stop doing what you're doing because then you can't do anything then you bring it on yourself you it's a live performance you have to believe that even if a mistake happens that the world will understand that that wasn't intended and that's not the idea behind it and and you say sorry if if you truly didn't said something that's offensive and i'm sure that I mean, I'm sure every artist in America is offended by me at some level because I'm constantly yelling at my kids to not be artists. <laughs> How much are you utterly yourself on stage? Because it feels like I'm talking to the same woman. Like the Venn diagram is a circle in terms of who I'm talking to now and who you are on the stage. Is that true? Is what is the difference between you on stage and you on a Saturday afternoon sitting in the backyard? to a fault i am me to a fault i wish i could be more polished i wish there are videos i've seen of myself i'm like why didn't i wear the shiny jacket and be like the glam queen and like what was i thinking but it's not who i am everything you see whether you like it or you don't like it or agree with it or not it is 100% what you see is what you get I feel lucky and blessed to be here at this moment in time when real is being celebrated because I do believe that 10 years ago I might not have had a career. 10 years ago it was about how skinny you are and how polished you know your accent is not cool like today I know I have an accent and and it's okay and I do the best I can I really do like every single video I put out there is subtitled properly and painstakingly because i want to meet people where they are like i don't want to be like oh this i am who i am i understand that that i have to go the distance to make myself understandable to to be part of the world that we're in but i i honestly don't have the energy to fake it because that's a lot of energy like the people who can pull it off they doing a lot of work i have respect for it but I don't even have the energy to be somebody that I'm not. And why will anybody come to see me if I'm not who I am when that's what they originally liked? That's comedian Zarna Garg. After the break, what's it like to go from having just a few followers on social media to international fame? Everything from lay people to the most famous people in the world, like presidents of the countries, quoting me my own jokes back. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and here is a small sampling of what you can expect on the Zarna Garg Show podcast. So what is the biggest stress related to sex? And also, are you guys aware of STDs? Do you know what that is? Well, you told me, I don't know if you remember this, but when I was in sixth grade, I asked you, what is it like to kiss somebody? And you said, if I kiss somebody, I would get an STD forever. <laughs> what I said. You said that I would get a permanent sexually transmitted disease if I kissed anybody. And from that moment on, I literally told all of my friends, do not kiss anyone. You will get an STD. They can all send me their thank you notes now. Zarna Garg was always a funny person, but it wasn't until her early 40s that she stepped on stage to see what she could make of it. And in the five years since, the comedy world has rewarded her greatly. She has her own Amazon special, and she recently launched her own podcast, which you just heard a snippet of. Let's get back to our conversation. Is there anything you will not joke about? Uh, I mean, I just released a podcast episode, which was the first episode about Indian family talks about sex. I never thought I was going to do that in my life. But here we are. So I guess the answer is no, never say never. I will do anything to bring humor to real life issues. I have no interest in adding to the negativity of this world. But anything that joyfully brings attention to something that we're all experiencing and living together, there, there are no holds barred. Like I did the whole episode about Indian family talks about sex, not knowing at all where it was going to go. And so many questions have come pouring in that now I'm going to have to do an episode two of that topic. Because there's so many things that other people are curious about that they're not able to talk about that I feel a little responsibility to like open those cans of worms on behalf of everybody. Yeah, your podcast, The Zarna Garg Show, it feels like I'm at a kitchen table with you and your family. It feels so intimate. Is is that part of what's drawing you to do this podcast, this different kind of intimacy that maybe you don't have so much when you're on stage? Yeah, of course. I mean, the whole world knows my husband and my kids and stuff because of all our videos. And there's always questions about, but well, what does he think? And what does she think? And now I'm like, you know, why don't we just put it out there so you can see and judge for yourself? Because a lot of people assume that I'm forcing this on my husband or my kids or that somehow there's some deep ulterior motive. And there's really not. They're all part of it to support their mom. They all have their own lives. My husband has been working 25 years, has built his business. My daughter is a very serious student. Like, we're not a family that's looking to this world to like build a fake world. But if our everyday life is bringing people joy and it's like, for example, this whole sex episode, we have tens of thousands of emails, comments all over the place that for the first time, people are watching the episode with their families and talking about sex in their family. So if we as a family are able to be part of that change, this positive, happy, joyful change, why would we not do it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And your kids are super funny too, which people can hear on the Zarna Garg Show podcast. So I'm curious if any of your three children said, you know, mom, I think I'd like to follow in your footsteps and, and no, pursue no, no. a career. No, 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 no. 
Under no circumstances, don't even go there. I couldn't even finish asking the questions, Arna. No, yeah, I know where it's going. That is the question. And I tell my kids, you will have a proper STEM education. I'm not for humanities. Very famously, I'm telling you, it drives me crazy when my daughter is like, I'm going to be an English major. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to learn all the secrets of computers. And, you know, and maybe when you're 30 years old, we will talk about what other things you can do, but it's not mm-hmm. happening right now. Okay. It's on the record. Yeah. You as a lawyer love things on the record. Yes. Um, you also just launched a new special, One in a Billion on Amazon. Uh, what did it feel like to book that gig? It came to me because people had seen me at the cellar and recommended me uh, for it to the producers. I didn't even know that there was a production company that does all, like I knew somebody must make these specials, but generally as a rule, I wait for things to come to me because it seems to work better when they have the idea that they should use me for something. When I chase it, it doesn't usually work out that well. So when they reached out to me, I was like, how do you know what I do? So when this comedy special came to me, I had a moment of like, feels like a lot, you know, like, I don't know how to do. And then they said to me, look, you do your comedy. We will do everything around. it." So I was like, you know what, that I can do. I do the comedy. And I didn't really, honestly, this is the distortion effect of social media. I'm already all over the world with my TikToks and Facebook and whatever. So it didn't feel like a big thing until the thing released. But to have the power of a trillion dollar company behind you and plugging you everywhere and like people from the tiniest towns in the world reaching, that was a whole another level of like, you know what I do? You know, you know uh, my work, like people quote and everything from lay people to the most famous people in the world, like presidents of the countries quoting me my own jokes back. But that is the power of Amazon. That is the power of being on a platform that big. But as with everything, I didn't really overthink it. I felt like if people in the clubs, live clubs are having so much fun with it, why not share it? What would you say is the difference between a night where you walk off stage and you feel like a million bucks, like grand slam that couldn't have gone better versus a night where you step off stage and you feel kind of meh? Like, what's the difference between those performances? What happened for you? It happens. Happens sometimes. Yeah, it happens. I mean, I've been, I did a show, like my, one of my earliest one of my earliest jokes was, you know, I'm an immigrant. I'm here to take your jobs. That opening bit usually kills. But I was at a venue once and people looked at me. They're like, we don't have jobs. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I had to rejigger all the next three jokes that came up. The mood of the room was really hostile towards immigrants. Like they were not happy I was there. And and that's okay. I can work with it. But like, it was the immediate calculation that, that I was like, you know what, but I'm sure you still have a mean mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to like shift everything instantly and come up with a new flow for myself. So you learn. And I came out of that. I was like, damn, I opened so badly. Like talk about not reading the room. You know, I just had no awareness. I walked up like a star 
and just said whatever came to my mind like a fool. And had I read the room a little bit, I may have been better prepared to open in a different way. But it happens and it's part of the journey. I mean, you, you no one's going to escape that. You have to go through it to understand what it is. And again, it feels like this. there's a refrain for you about this connection with the people you're in the room with, this connection with humanity in general. And it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, by doing this work, by doing this practice for so long, it has to have started to infiltrate how you improvise when you're off stage, when you're not being quote unquote funny for, for the work, right? Like when I think about the work that I do, I know that it's been 17 years that I've been in public radio. And so, yeah, at dinner parties, yeah, I ask more questions than I ever did when I worked at T-Mobile selling cell phones. Very different questions now. And so in a way, some people interpret that as, oh, she's just doing her job at this dinner party. But no, it really is just an enhanced part of me because of this work. So would you say that doing this work has made you a better improviser when you're at dinner party or when you're just hanging out with friends? Absolutely. And everything feels like it could be a joke. It actually sometimes makes people nervous around me too. And that's <laughs> that's something comics talk about all the time and I see it. Where if something really funny happens spontaneously, people go, is this going to be in your act? Is this going to be on Amazon? And I tell them, like, it could be because it's my life experience too, you know, but I would never, what would never happen is that I would publicly shame anybody. Like, even if it makes its way to the act or what, I'm a mom, I'm, you know, I'm a woman, I'm like a woman of color. I would not go out on stage, no matter how funny the story is. And be like, and you know what he said, my famous friend, it would all be rewritten and like rebuilt to preserve the joke, but to like remove everything around it. Because I just, that if when people are nervous about, I can get, like, I'm sure people are nervous sometimes around you because they're like, you know, are you going to put this on, on radio? Are you going to, you know, I'm sure that they get nervous. Yes. Ask my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> But I believe that you preserve the integrity of, you know, you, you just, our friends and our spouses, our partners, they're all with us for a reason. You know, even when that relationship and the essence of who you are doesn't change. Yeah. And you speak for yourself when you do yeah. this work. You, yeah. don't, you don't speak on their behalf. Right. But Agreed. you sure as hell can tell your own story. Yeah. Motherhood is a big part of your life. It's a big part of your work, your act. And you had mentioned that your mother died when you were young and it was sudden. Yeah, very sudden. I'm sorry for your loss. If it's okay to ask, um, how much is she with you? Because I lost her so early in life, I have very few memories of her. Uh, in fact, I have many, many memories of being with my siblings. My siblings basically raised me. But somebody once said to me that the thing about not having a mother is that it's a very sad experience in life to grow up without a mother. But it's a life-changing thing to believe that your mother is sitting on your shoulder at all times. Because those of us who essentially grew up without a parent believe that that parent is around us at all times. And I should specify mother because I'm not sure how it is. I don't feel that way about my father. 
my father passed too but i don't feel that way about it it's the mother is a special really and the power of your mother sitting on this imaginary mother sitting on your shoulder at all times guiding you blessing you sometimes stopping you from doing things is a very powerful thing and maybe that's what helps me take the leaps of faith that i take because i feel like i'm not alone that there is a higher power with me at all times do you think you make her laugh i think she's worried if i was my own mother i would be worried for me uh it's a, it's still a very daunting long road ahead and you know and i do deal with some real strong headwinds from people back home but i think she is definitely proud that i'm trying and i'm in the fight that i i didn't just give up and accept that because i didn't find what i wanted to do early enough in life that it's not out there that i kept fighting until i found it do you have like a theme song The cool thing about this work is I get to use any music I want going out of these segments. So like for you, what would be the best song to close this episode out with? So can I choose an Indian song, a Bollywood song? Oh, please. So there is a song that's my favorite. It says Abhi to party shuru hui. I can text it to you that the party has just started. We're just getting started and there's lots where this came from. Well, Zarna Garg, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank no, thank you. The pleasure is mine. Such an honor. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have a link to Zarna's podcast and Amazon special at ctpublic.org/audacious. Oh, this episode was so lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Di Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our wonderful interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. I know you loved this conversation, so if you're in the mood for more comedy talk, check out the episode we did featuring comedians who also have disabilities, including Maysoon Zayed, Danielle Perez, and Benny Feldman. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Send me your thoughts and jokes on Facebook and Instagram at Kion Wolf, or please send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>